About 30 years ago, Airbus set out to build a really big plane. How big? Well, the stretch version would hold 900 people in economy. How big? Well, in many airports, they would have to change signage and blast protection because it was so big and heavy. And yes, in some airports, they'd have to reinforce every runway because it was so heavy. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about big projects and changing the world, not to mention resilience and perfectionism. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hi, it's Bernadette G, and I'm here to talk to you about how you can become a better storyteller. Storytelling is not an art reserved for the chosen few. It's a skill that you can learn, just like the students who've taken part in the Story Skills Workshop have done. Actually, I had a story to tell that was really important for me, but also was going to be very, very important for people in the future. It's been absolutely life-changing for me to see stories everywhere and to see my own stories. I was surprised that the learning was as much in the giving as in the receiving. We got to not only learn about storytelling, we actually got to practice using stories in our everyday life. If you're ready to become a better storyteller, I hope you'll join us. I hope you'll check it out. Visit akimbo.com slash go for all the upcoming workshops. Go make a ruckus. Those of you who are fans of aviation know that in 2019, after spending more than $25 billion and shipping just a couple hundred planes, Airbus canceled the project. During that same period of time, planes that seated 150 to 200 people did great. They sold at record numbers. They were flown around the world. So what's going on here? What's going on here is we have to be really clear about what the appropriate size of a project is. Because we have been persuaded that our job is to change the world with a very grand gesture. Many people don't want to change the world. Many people say, I'd rather just do my job. And some people, some people set out to change the world in really big and dramatic ways. But here's the truth. Everyone changes the world every single day. Not the whole world, but part of the world. If you burn any carbon, you're changing the world. If you have kids, you're changing the world. If you don't have kids, you're changing the world. You change the world when you give somebody a smile or let them in front of you in line. And you change the world when you cut them off. We change the world when we launch a mid-sized project. We change the world when we cancel a project. So if you're going to change the world, you might as well change it in a way that you can be proud of. So we begin with this idea of resilience. All of us get to do projects. Our career is nothing but a series of projects. A project might be a job where you show up doing the same thing every day for a long time. A project might be a blog post. But we pick projects. We pick projects, we work on projects, and we ship projects. And having good judgment about which projects to pick is critically important. Because if we're working on project A, we can't, at the same time, be working on project B. 
the opportunity cost of what we choose to do is enormous. In the case of Airbus, for that same amount of money during that same period of time, what could they have developed instead? When we think about how we will choose to spend our time, who in our community we will see, what we will even pick as our community, these are all choices. These choices have an opportunity cost. These choices contribute to the world as we hope to make it. And the best way to make an impact is not to spread our peanut butter too thin. In a famous memo, a senior executive at Yahoo sent a note to his teammates pointing out that because Yahoo was trying to do too many things, they weren't doing much of anything. They were spreading the peanut butter too thin. What does this mean? It means that if you pick the right project and allocate the right resources to it, you're way more likely to accomplish your goal. And what makes something the right size project? It depends on who we are seeking to change, who we are seeking to reach. If you are trying to raise money for your nonprofit, identifying five people who can each give you a sizable donation and overwhelming those people with the goodness, with the fit, with the respect, with the dignity, with the preparation that you do, it's going to be way more likely that they donate than if you identify 5,000 people from some list and spin the wheel and hope for the best. A long time ago, I did a project with Isaac Asimov and Kodak. And the idea was to take Asimov's concept of robots and turn it into a murder mystery video game. Not a video game like a computer game, a game that was played with a home video. Just a videotape that you would stop and start and play some cards. Siskel and Ebert gave it two thumbs up, which made me really happy. Unfortunately, they never aired that episode. But what we discovered is that $450,000 wasn't enough money to make a great video. If we'd had that money and spent it on a board game, we probably could have delighted the people who bought board games. But Kodak had bigger dreams than that. Kodak wanted to sell 20 million of these things. They wanted to, and did, promote it during the Olympics, sell it at Kmart and Target and Walmart. However, it's hard to spread the peanut butter that thin. To belabor the food analogy, ketchup did not start as a mass market product for everybody. It was a condiment for a few people. And then gradually, over time, people adopt it. Picking the right size project, one that has a runway. Oh boy, I've got so many puns today. One that has a runway that will help get us to where we seek to go, which leads to the idea of resilience. Because what it means to have a project is that we are predicting the future. We are predicting not only that our project will work, that it will resonate for the people we seek to serve, to change, but that the world will be the same when the project is finished. And the longer it takes to bring our project to the world, the more likely it is that a black swan event comes along. The more likely it is that someone beats us to it. The more likely it is that by the time the product is done, the world doesn't need the product or the project the way we thought it did. And so when the world changes, then what do you do? In the case of the Airbus 380, they thought they were being super resilient. They built one version 
for fancy first-class flyers. They built one version or hoped to build one version for people who are going to ship freight, people like FedEx. They thought they had it all figured out. Unfortunately, when you discover that the airlines around the world aren't going to line up for your very, very specific elephant, it becomes a white elephant. It turns out that you can't adjust easily because the design wasn't particularly resilient. That as market demands changed, it was too hard to change what they were building. So this idea of resilience sits next to the idea of the right size. And the third piece is perfectionism. Perfectionism does not mean quality. Perfectionism is a way of hiding. Perfectionism is us polishing something where people don't care about the polish. If you're going to launch an airplane, it is not perfectionism to make sure it will never crash. That is simply one of the design specs. Perfectionism is trying to consider every single possible objection and answering it. Perfectionism means making the lists ever longer, delaying the project, adding to the budget, not finding out what the market is actually ready to do. Because we erroneously believe that we never get a second chance to make a first impression. We erroneously believe that if what we ship isn't perfect, we will be shamed forever. But when it comes time to change the world, whatever we ship will not be perfect. It's a given. We can't know if it's perfect because we haven't engaged with the market yet. What we can do is figure out what's important and get what's important correct and then ship and learn and adjust. That when we bring resilience to the fore, what we have is the chance to show up for the people we are seeking to change, the people we are seeking to serve, and say, here, I made this, and then watch what happens, and then evolve it. One more part, and this is the idea of a portfolio. Stockbrokers can show you easily that a diversified stock portfolio will outperform putting all your chips, all your bets on one company. That what it means to have a portfolio as a human is that you haven't bet everything on the world matching just one prediction. But if we're going to have a portfolio, if we're going to be resilient, if we're putting down our bets in multiple areas, then we cannot do giant projects because we can't go all in on one and also have the resilience to be flexible with a few. And so the purpose of the screed is to highlight the fact that we have been fooling ourselves into thinking that we have to be perfectionists and that we have to do something that will truly change the world that we can brag about. Instead, if we are resilient, if we are standing for something, for some group of people, but that group might be smaller than our peers were hoping we would show up for, we have an advantage. And the advantage is that group, that smallest viable audience, is a group we can earn trust with. That group, if we earn their trust, if we delight them, they will tell the others. And so it begins to spread. Alert listeners will have no doubt found the paradoxes and contradictions in what we've just covered. On one hand, as Brad Garlinghouse has pointed out, don't spread the peanut butter too thin. You have to get through the dip. You have to do something with focus. 
On the other hand, we need resilience. At the same time, we have to do work that matters, work that we're proud of because we're all changing the world. On the other hand, don't take on too big a project because you won't have the resources to overwhelm the smallest viable audience and actually make a difference. And most of all, don't be a perfectionist, but you better make it perfect because they're not the same thing. I believe all of these contradictions aren't contradictions at all. They are simply boundaries on our way to figuring out how to create leverage. That what it means to have a portfolio is that we are showing up indifferent about multiple ways the world could be, as opposed to the brave but perhaps lazy work of saying it has to be exactly like I am planning or nothing's going to work. We show up and we say, I've got no clue, but at least I've picked five or six or 10 alternate futures. And this thing I'm building, we've got enough alternative plans that this thing I'm building has got a shot at working for the audience I seek to serve. And the idea of our budget, because we all have a budget and we all face opportunity costs. And the mistake is taking on a project that is too big in too short a time because when we hit the speed bump, and we will, we don't have the resilience to pivot that we've predicted we're going to get it exactly right, the way Katzenberg did with Quibi. Quibi did not get it exactly right. They can blame it on the timing of their launch, but either way, trying to create a cultural touchstone that changes the way an entire generation consumes media, that's not where you start. You start by engaging with the audience over and over again, your audience, doing it with focus, doing work that matters, keeping resilience in mind as we go, and picking an appropriate sized project so that the resources we've got, the time we've got, the choices we make are appropriate for the opportunity in front of us. It all grows drip by drip. The ocean is made of drops. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with a couple questions from a previous episode. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, just visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. These two are really similar. I don't think they coordinated. 
Hi, Seth. Peter Cook here in Melbourne, Australia, with a question about last week's episode on modern monetary theory. You said government's job could be or maybe should be to create a situation where people are healthy, smart and confident. I love this idea. I think it's a really big idea. Healthy and smart are kind of self-evident and confident is is a bit more interesting to me. You said that we need to be confident to believe the story of money, but I think it's a much bigger idea than that and there's something underneath that. So I'd love you to unpack a little bit more what you mean by having people be confident and perhaps even what governments could do to enable that more. Hello, Seth. This is Anupam from Berlin. Thank you for your episode on modern monetary theory. Listening to it gave me more of an insight on how monetary policy works than doing a course on macroeconomics back in college. However, there's one aspect of it that got me thinking. You mentioned how the printing of money can be justified for governments, at least the theory states that the printing of money by governments can be justified for three causes, which is to ensure that people are healthy, to ensure that they are smart, and also to give them confidence. Uh, What was conspicuous by its absence in this list for me was the need for government also to enable technological infrastructure. And by technology, I don't mean the technology that reaches end users like vehicles and mobile apps, but the underlying infrastructure like roads and high-speed internet cables. I'd love for you to have, I'd love to have your thoughts on that. Thank you. So what did I mean by confident? What I meant is this. It's really hard to invest invest in an education, invest in a building, invest in a business, if you believe that it could all disappear tomorrow at someone's whim or because the economy as a whole is precarious. When we look at economic downturns, a part of it is the fact that the economy hit a speed bump, but a big part of it is the fact that mass psychology persuades us that things are going to get worse instead of better. If we think about what does it mean to decide to go to school for two years or four years, to go into debt, to spend the money, well, we have to be confident that when we get out, there's still going to be a market for that thing we just trained in. Now, one of the reasons people can go into so much debt to get through medical school is that we have a 100-year track record of people graduating from medical school doing fine professionally and financially. There doesn't seem to be a lot of risk at the other side. So no, we cannot de-risk our economy and our culture. But what we can do is figure out how to erect a civil society that leads to an expectation of optimism, an expectation that we are going to be surrounded by people who will reward us for the hard work that we are doing that one of the things that makes productivity go up is investment, investment in technology, investment in education, investment in community. And those investments only happen in large measure if people are optimistic about what is to come. And so part of the job of community action is to create an environment where we feel confident about what might be happening next. 
Hi, Seth. This is Carol from Washington State. And I am an elected official for our county. And in your last podcast, you were talking about how, you know, we are the government and the government, and it's our job to create a place where people can be healthy, smart, and confident. And if you were an elected official, I'm curious to know, what would you focus on at the local level to make that happen? I appreciate everything you do and your thought leadership, and I would love to hear your answer for this. Thank you. Thank you for this question, and thanks for the work you're doing in local government. It is thankless. It is hard. You are bearing the brunt of a lot of people's frustration. I'm thinking about the little town where I live, where the mayor is extraordinary at making possibility happen. And depending on the scale of the local government we're talking about, there are lots of things that communities can do together to create this idea of more productivity, possibility, and confidence. As Anupam pointed out earlier, building roads, building high-speed infrastructure creates productivity, and that productivity is one of the things that leads to forward motion. Now, it's unlikely that this local government that you are part of is going to be able to do a billion-dollar infrastructure play. But one of the key pieces of infrastructure is not simply being there for somebody who has an urgent need, like zoning, or is really angry, because you confront those things all the time. It might be something as simple as creating communication, creating circles of people who realize that people like us do things like this is the definition of culture. And it doesn't have to cost a lot of money. But using the central authority of local government and there are things like libraries, there are things like spiritual institutions, there are plenty of places, government, quasi-governmental and non-governmental, that have been the fabric of our culture. What happens when we start doing this with intention? What happens when we connect a tutor with a kid who needs to be tutored? What happens when we amplify what's going on at the high school and help those kids get into the community whether it's as interns or as aides or as people who are giving insight or learning from somebody else, that when we weave together this sort of forward motion and possibility, things get better. And it could be something as simple as a phone number for someone to call when they're hungry or lonely or when they have something to offer. It can be something like the farmer's market, which doesn't cost the local government money per se, but it does cost effort to be able to be the impresario, the organizer, the person who can say, we're going to use this space at this time to bring these sorts of people together. Because one thing we know about our culture is culture is, by its very nature, what we do together. And this pandemic that we are surviving, this internet regime that we are living in, tends to push us apart and local government, because it is based on geography, has a chance to bring us together. So thanks for your work. I appreciate it. We'll see you all next time. Thanks. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker 
at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age, and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know? And none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like, we have data. What All MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.